0: Well, thank you for, um, first I just want to say thank you for uh, the support, Abundant Life support of Aruna and the work that we do. Uh, Couldn't do it without without partnerships like this, so I want to thank you for that. Uh, And I know our time is short, so I'm going to jump right in. But before I do, uh, let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your goodness to us. Uh, Lord who we just we simply don't deserve it and yet Lord you are so loving and good and Lord we pray and ask that now as we open your word um, would you speak to us would you give us eyes to see you for who you are that we would worship rightly and Lord we pray for your glory's sake and for our good we love you amen Amen. all right we're going to jump into 2nd Samuel chapter 9 so if you got uh, got a Bible open that up uh, I'm going to lay out a little bit of context first to where why where we are by the time we hit Second Samuel nine. So uh, essentially, what we've got is God has rescued the people from uh, Pharaoh in the Exodus. We've kind of moved through. He's seeking to establish his kingdom on earth. It was a theocracy, and so he was their king. But the people said, you know, hey, we want to we want to have a, a human king. And so God, you know, kind of condescended to that, obliged to that and established a human king. Now the design was that the king over Israel was then supposed to be a reflection of God as the true king. So the decisions that the, the king of Israel made, the way that the king of Israel acted, you know, from character to action to all those other things was supposed to essentially be a reflection of God, you know, essentially Christ as the true king. Now what's interesting is as they start off out of the gate, Saul essentially steps to the fore as the king. Saul didn't do such a good job. But what we do see is that Saul has a son, Jonathan. A guy named Jesse has a son, David. David and Jonathan become really good friends. Now, throughout the course of what Saul's trying to do, you know, he's trying to you know, win the land, the Philistines come against him. You guys know the story about Goliath and how the Philistines you know, kind of are, are you know, setting up the Israelites for failure and all that kind of stuff. David steps to the forefront, drops Goliath. Everybody's like, oh my goodness, David. You know, they start singing his praises and that sort of thing. Saul gets very jealous. Well, as as a few more years pass, David starts to get a pretty significant following. Jonathan, who's essentially in line to the throne when his father dies, in humility recognizes God's unique hand on David. David. And the two of them have a conversation in 1 Samuel where Jonathan basically says, Hey David, I see the writing on the wall. You're going to be the king. And when you become king, would you show chesed to my family? Chesed is a, is a Hebrew word that just it has loaded with meaning. It's this sort of deep, deeply relational, covenantal, grace-filled sort of love that never lets you down. So it's not just the idea of kindness. It's like deeply rooted stuff. David says, yes, I will do that, Jonathan. Well, after that point, they part. Saul's trying to kill David. David flees. He starts to gather a following. A number of things start to happen. But, but uh, Saul and Jonathan are in battle with the Philistines at one point. They're both killed. 2 Samuel 9 happens 15 years after Saul and Jonathan are killed. Okay, David has ascended the throne and actually he's won a number of victories. So by the time we're hitting 2 Samuel 9, the nation of Israel is in a really good spot. There's some really neat things that are happening. And as we enter into 2 Samuel 9, the thing that's so cool about this is you've got this massive sort of kingdom work that's happening, but then we have this individual story about an individual person who's seemingly insignificant in the whole scheme of things. And yet we get a picture of the king. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 reads like this, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness, that's that word has said, for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Zeba? Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there still not someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Okay, now we've got we to kind of lay out the scenario here. Okay. Imagine Ziba's suspicion. And here's why he would be suspicious. The ruling king, David, is calling someone from Saul's uh, house, essentially a servant, Ziba, and saying, Hey Zeba, is there anyone left in the lineage of Saul that I can show him this unoverwhelming overwhelming sort of kindness, this sort of grace-lavish, never-let-you-down, overwhelming goodness? Is there anybody left that I can do that? Now the reason why Zeba would be really suspicious about that is because in the ancient Near East, any time a new king ascended the throne, one of the first things that would be done is they would kill off everyone. In the, in the previous king's house. They would slaughter. And we see that biblically. It happens with Bashan, Bashan and, and Zimri and some others. It was just it was normal practice. It's what happened. So, as you can imagine, by by this time, you've got David saying, Hey Ziba, anybody anybody left? And imagine what Ziba's thinking, like, oh, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna rat out people left in the house of Saul, you can just so you can kill them? But, but notice what Ziba says. Ziba says, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. Now, I gotta be honest, that's a really odd thing to say. If you're asking someone about like a family member or a friend or oh yeah, I graduated from such and such, I'd say oh yeah, did you graduate? Yeah, there was this young woman named Stacy, she was in my class and she had the most messed up toes. What? You you don't typically share that sort of information. It's, it's, It's kind of an odd adding. But in Old Testament narrative, all the details matter. The reason why Ziba was kind of challenging the king this way is Mephibosheth did have crippled feet. And the belief was that for someone to be crippled meant that they were accursed by God. And so there's a sense in which Ziba is saying, okay king, You want to show this overwhelming grace, this incredible kindness? Well, guess what? If you do, you're inviting someone who's accursed into the kingdom. What are you going to do? It's an interesting dynamic as as we kind of look at the king. Okay, well, how will the king respond? What will the king do? Again, he's supposed to be a reflection of Christ the true king. And notice what the king says. Where is he? doesn't even flinch, doesn't even bat an eye, just says, okay, well, where is he? And Ziba says, well, he's in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Now, what this is telling us is he's at the house of Makir, which means that Mephibosheth literally cannot provide for himself. His feet are turned under, calloused from, from being turned under and kind of trying to work his way through the streets. Hands probably couched from makeshift crutches. Now, what's interesting about this as well is as you picture that picture of Mephibosheth and kind of the shabby clothes and all those, we ask the question okay, well, how did he even become crippled? It's because when the nurse that was caring for Mephibosheth learned that Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle, out of fear of David killing everyone in the house, she scoops up Mephibosheth and tries to flee. And in the process, drops him and cripples his feet. It tells us that in 2 Samuel 4.4. So you get this picture. There's all these dynamics that are going on. And David is basically calling Mephibosheth to himself. Now imagine if you're Mephibosheth and you're hanging out in the house of Makia in Lodabar. Feet all curled under, makeshift crutches, shabby clothing can't provide for yourself, born enemy of the king, and you hear a pounding on the door, and it's the king's guard. And they say, Mephibosheth, the king wants a word with you. Now imagine as Mephibosheth is making that journey with the king's guard by himself alone. No one there to advocate on his behalf. He knows he has nothing to offer He has no skills, he has no money, he has nothing to offer the king. More than that, he recognizes he is desperately needy. He needs to be provided for. And then on top of that, he's got the enemy's blood running through his veins. He is born of the house of Saul. And during that journey, I can only imagine the things that are going on through Mephibosheth's mind thinking about well, will I be killed? Will I be executed? Maybe I'll just be thrown in prison. I don't know what exactly was going through his mind, but I guarantee you he was not thinking, oh, this is gonna be cool. I can see the palace hanging out with the king. I guarantee that was not on his mind. And so by the time we actually get to this scene, and you kind of picture it in your mind, in the palace, and the beauty of the palace and the contrast to Mephibosheth, the contrast was so stark. Because you got, you got know, these, these sort of cedar pillars in the palace, you've got David in his ornately garbed, you've got all the, the soldiers with their, their, you know, their armor and everything, and, and you've got the smell of jasmine in the air, and you've got the, the picture of bounty in the kingdom. And then you've got Mephibosheth. Turned over feet, calloused, makeshift crutches, shabby clothes. And he steps in, and the contrast is stark. And the contrast is so stark that Mephibosheth recognizes it. Now, I'd imagine he probably came in just, just praying that he wouldn't be killed, hoping for some sort of mercy. And so as he comes in, and as they kind of see this huge stark contrast, he knows everything, he knows that he has nothing to offer, he knows he's needy, he knows he's born of the enemy, and he does the only thing that he thinks could potentially help him. And look at what it says. This is what he does. Mephibosheth uh, Mephibosheth comes in through the door, and the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, again a reminder that he's from the enemy, came to David and fell on his face to pay him homage. Mephibosheth's only course of action, falling on his face because he is exposed. He doesn't have anything to offer. He knows he's desperately needy. He knows he's from the enemy's bloodline. He has nothing to offer and he falls face to the floor praying for mercy he's exposed have you ever been exposed like this you see oftentimes especially especially you know us in the West we like to try and hide everything you know to kind of make sure that we can present the best version of ourselves to everyone social media is a perfect example of that even when people kind of do that like oh I'm going to show you my humble like here's my real photo Even that in and of itself is couched in the idea of trying to present yourself in a way. And so what you get is this sort of picture of trying to hide weakness and trying to hide all these other things to present yourself in a certain way. Mephibosheth doesn't have that option. And I want to submit that when we actually stand before Christ, we don't either. When you look at Moses, when you look at Isaiah, when you look at Peter, when you look at John, when they were confronted face-to-face with Christ, they had the exact same response as Mephibosheth. They fell face to the floor as though they were dead. Woe to me, a sinner. And that word sinner is an interesting one. It's the one that kind of gets picked up on in uh, throughout all of Scripture, but especially in Isaiah 1 as the Lord brings a charge against His people. And He basically says that you have chosen iniquity. And that word iniquity is a really unique word because it doesn't just mean like this sort of action that a person does like I stole something or I was mean to someone or I didn't pay my taxes it's not action the word iniquity actually goes beneath that and it talks about the idea of a shifting of character or nature that is in opposition to God the way we could think about this is guilt and and there's a lot we could unpack in this I don't have time to unpack all but the idea would be that guilt essentially is associated with something I do So, I stole, therefore I'm guilty. Whereas shame has a lot more to do with my identity, who I am. I am a thief. You see, if I choose to do something, I stole. The shame of that is, I am a thief. It starts to define who I am. And the whole idea within Scripture is this idea, this deep-rooted reality that sin affects us deeply to the core. It's not just the surface activity. There's something deeply rooted in who we are that's gotten all twisted up because of the fall. And when we stand before Christ, that gets exposed. And so the big question is, how will the king respond? How will the king deal with guilt and shame? Well, notice Mephibosheth laying face to the floor. What does David do? And I I want you to notice this really cool dynamic of what happens next. The words that get used, they don't refer to David anymore as the king. Instead, it's just the personal name of David. And that's significant because now you've got this king who represents the God of the universe personally, intimately, engaging Mephibosheth. And I wonder, I don't know, as I picture the scene, I wonder if he got down to Mephibosheth's level and kind of helped him back up. I wonder if he kind of grabbed him and kind of lifted him back up. And notice the first thing that he says. Maybe he's looking eye to eye into Mephibosheth's face and he says this, Do not fear don't be afraid and i love the picture of what's happening here because it's the exact same thing that said to moses and to isaiah and to peter and to john every single time when they're confronted with this sense of falling face down this sort of need for mercy the god of the universe would lift up and look in the eye and say do not be afraid and what happens here with the king with david as a representation of Christ the true King, He says, I will protect, I will provide, and you will have position. It's beautiful what happens here. He says, you have My protection. In other words, My banner is over you. You are now a part of Me, My kingdom, My rule. So My banner is over you. I will protect you. Now that doesn't mean that nothing bad is going to happen to Mephibosheth or us. But what it does mean is that no one can take us from the king's hand. No one. The king owns us. He sets his banner over us. <clears throat> not only do we have his protection, but we've got his provision. Notice what he says as he's looking face to face with Mephibosheth in verse seven. Do not fear. I will show you kindness. And there's that that said word again. That deep covenantal kindness. He says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. You shall always eat at my table. Now notice this. Mephibosheth is just praying for mercy. Oh, please don't kill me. Now David could have extended mercy. He could have said, you know what? Mephibosheth, I just want to let you know there's no beef between us. We're cool. You can head back to to the house of Makir. I just want to let you know that put your heart at ease. That would be extraordinary. But this king doesn't just do that. He goes over the top. I mean, way over the top with grace. Look at what he does. The king calls Ziba, the servant, and says to him, all that belonged to the house of Saul is now Mephibosheth's. And... You and your sons and your servants shall all till the land for him and bring in produce to your master's grandson to have bread to eat. In other words, not only will I protect you, but I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you more land than you could possibly dream that that you could ever do anything with. There's going to be so much produce coming in, you couldn't eat it in five lifetimes. I'm going to so provide, it's going to be so abundant that you won't even know what to do. And not only that, then the next thing he says, not only is it provision, then he says position. Check it out in in, uh, verse 10 there, midway through. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now get this, he's already said you're going to get all the land, you're going to get all the produce, people are going to harvest it for you and provide it to you. But guess what? The overabundant bounty, you won't even need it. Why? Because you will always have a seat at my table. You will always be seated at my table as one of my own sons. Now, within this culture, to actually sit at table with someone meant that you openly associated with them, it meant that we are in intimate relationship together. We are identified together. That's why Jesus got in so much trouble. Because he would sit down and he'd have conversations with prostitutes. He'd eat with tax collectors and people were going, well, he's a drunkard. No. He's a loving, gracious king. And what we see happen throughout the whole passage here is Mephibosheth experiences over abundant grace. Grace on top of grace. So much that he could never expend it all. He couldn't possibly use it up. And the whole idea here is when we talk about protection, when we talk about provision, when we talk about position, it's not that somehow, oh, wow, this this means that God's going to make us rich. No, that's not the point. The point is the abundance of grace that completely overwhelms, that completely covers all need. And when you look at how this thing ends, I love the way it, it, it kind of sums up. Four times in this, this uh, second half of the passage, it says Mephibosheth will eat at the king's table, he will eat at the king's table, he will eat at the king's table, he will eat at the king's table. In a small passage like this, the fact that it's mentioned four times is to drive home the idea Mephibosheth has a new identity. Mephibosheth is no longer... The, the, the sort of born of the enemy. And I wish we had time to really dig into this, but the idea is in justification in Christ on the cross, the guilt has been removed. And in the process of us being sanctified, he's dealing with our shame to help us get a new identity that's rooted in him. And the whole point of this idea of him being seated at the table of the king is to say Mephibosheth has a new identity. He is a son of the king. He is no longer an enemy. He is no longer defined by all those sort of past things. He is now defined by the King who has seated Him in honor. That's the story of the Gospel. That's our story. That's the beauty of who Jesus is. This is the Gospel. He's the King. We're His Mephibosheths. We've got nothing to offer Him on our best day. And we are desperately needy on our best day. And we were born, fallen, in opposition to Him. And yet, the King comes knocking on our door when we're sitting in our need, when we're not even thinking about who He is and the poverty of who we are and the poverty of our soul, He comes knocking through His Spirit and He starts to draw us. And as we start to get exposed, we fall face down going, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner. And He says, do not be afraid because I will protect you. I will provide for you. You have a new position as my son and my daughter. That's the gospel story because of an exceptional king, Christ the king, who came to this earth took on flesh and then bore the brutal cross and then rose again to an empty tomb to make sure that it's secured for us that story is incredible and it's our story but I want you to notice this how this all ends verse 13 so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table it's like this victory cry and he was lame in both feet like come on why you got to point out his feet again why is that why would we kind of move through this passage of this sort of really heightened beauty of what the king has done for someone who's desperately needy and, and doesn't deserve it. And then all of a sudden you're talking about this position and this provision and, and then you're going to point out his feet again. This sort of thing that shows that he's still needy. That he still can't provide for himself. You see, the point is is because we are still desperately needy. Yes, we have a seat at the King's table. We have it now, and we will have it in eternity when we all sit down at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And the King will be seated, and He will welcome us to that table, not because of something we have to offer. In spite of the fact that we're desperately needy, in spite of the fact that we are an enemy, we will have a seat at the table because of Him. And today, the reminder of this last verse is we desperately need him day after day after day. You see, the oddity would be if Mephibosheth, after this sort of experience with the king, it would be really odd if Mephibosheth, the next time he came to the king's table, tried to pretend that his feet weren't all like curled under. That'd be a really weird thing. You'd be like, dude, Mephibosheth, man, your feet are crippled. Everybody knows that. But for Mephibosheth to try and pretend and act like, well, no, King, I'm going to prove to you that that you made a good choice in you know in, in bringing me into the family. That now I'm going to prove to you that you showed me grace, and now I don't need to. You know, I'm going to I'm going to show you that I don't need your grace anymore. I'm going to try and try and show you that I'm I'm able to bring something to the table. How absurd of an idea is that? Mephibosheth's feet are crippled. Period. And the reality for us is, once we're saved by Christ, once we've experienced the overwhelming grace and the reality of who He is, we shouldn't try and live the rest of our lives acting as though we still don't desperately need it. Trying to prove to Him somehow that, hey, you made a good choice, now I'm going to show you. No. We we should be living lives of humility that say every day, Lord. I love the fact that you are sanctifying me and I'm becoming more and more like Christ. But I still see how far I have to go. And I desperately need you today as much as the first day I met you. I desperately need you to clean up my heart, transform my life, that I could live a radical life of obedience to bring you honor and glory. I desperately need you. Not for salvation, because that's already been accomplished, but for the sanctification process that I can bring you honor and glory with my life. We are the Lord's Mephibosheths. This is our king, and we experience his Hesed, his overwhelming, grace-lavished covenant because we're his children. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that you are so, so good to us. Lord, thank you that though we have nothing to offer and though we are desperately needy and though we rebel in our sin, Lord, you extend to us, has said, an overwhelming, grace-lavished kindness. Lord, we don't deserve it. And yet, Lord, we love it. We love you. We love the fact that you would be so good to us. Lord, I pray that you would continue within our hearts to reveal the sin where we need your help, reveal those areas that you need to work on. And Lord, we have the humility of heart to lay those before you, knowing that you are a good and gracious Father. And Lord, would you change our hearts and mold us and shape us more into your likeness. Lord, would you help us to live radical lives that bring you honor and glory. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.